G'day, my name's Todd. I'm one of the pastors that hangs around here at Every Night. Uh, I take care of the growth group networks, and I love doing that. And I've joined a growth group for the first time in years because I've been away, and it's so good to see all my growth group buddies up here singing, leading us. It's good to be in a community. Um, I met a guy called Mitch this morning, and he was his first time at church ever. And uh, this was a pretty strange experience for him, especially because he got one that was meant for like Sydney Anglicans. Like one got sent here by accident. It's asking him all these questions about what do you think about the diocese and how's Anglicare and da 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 da. And he's just like, oh. But it was a good conversation starter, and we'll come back to that in a second, actually. But let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you please capture us tonight with a massive picture of him, and please help us by your Spirit to live in light of who you've shown him to be. We pray all this in his name. Amen? Amen. Well, that's the question, uh, who is Jesus? It's a great question to ask as you read any of the four first books of the Bible. Who is Jesus? And more importantly, what do you make of Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Um, You might think Jesus was a myth. Uh, He wasn't actually a real person. Or maybe he was so drummed up as a person and over-exaggerated and misunderstood. Or maybe he was, yeah, maybe it's just a normal guy, normal man. Or Jesus is God, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, what you make of Jesus, how you answer the question, who is Jesus, what do I make of him, um, will radically change the way that you treat him and radically change the way that you live your life from here on out. I noticed, that's why I brought this up, question 23 and 24. My faith influences decisions and actions in my daily life. My faith in God is an important part of who I am. I wonder how you answered those. Because what we make of Jesus changes the way we live and the way that we treat him. And so the flip side of that is, how does the way that you live your life say about, what does that say about what you make of Jesus? Now, I've got a bunch of mates uh, from primary school. We catch up half a dozen times a year, go to the pub. And it's clear to me that they don't consider Jesus unless they see me. They walk in, they see me. They consider him for the first time since the last time we saw, right? Um, he doesn't feature in their life at all. Uh, they don't, their lives don't seem to change at all. It doesn't seem to matter if they've thought about Jesus or not. Uh, and we chat about Jesus and he's another guy and another idea that they can feel free to drop as they walk out the pub doors, right? That's them. I've got another mate in high school who I catch up with a little more regularly, read the Bible, um, and he recognises Jesus as his saviour. That's what he says. He's like, I need a saviour. He's, he's convinced of that. He knows how um, wrought he is as a person, right? But when we sit down and read Jesus' word and say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's clear that he gives up at a certain point and says, no, this section of a life, can't give that over. We always talk about the same things. What about this party life? What about this party life? No. You're here at church tonight. And I wonder if you consider Jesus outside of these four, I didn't count the walls, I should have counted the walls, but outside of these four walls, do you listen to him? Do you consider him when you make decisions in your life? Who do you live for? Do you live for him, for yourself, or for someone else? 
the claim of the Bible is that Jesus is no ordinary man and so we cannot treat him like an ordinary man. We are well and truly back into John's Gospel tonight and it's great because we get to work chapter to chapter, page to page, verse to verse and the best part about that is we just get to encounter the person of Jesus time and time again and be blown away by him and so tonight that's what we're going to do. We're going to see more of this Jesus and um, we'll see that he's someone who can't be ignored. He can't be swept under the rug. He must be obeyed if we're to have life. And so tonight, step by step, five steps actually, if you're a note taker, we're going to see a compounding view of Jesus that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and better and better. And I want you to think, where is my picture of Jesus up to? Is it big enough? Is it the right picture? And so first piece, it's a bit foundational, it's a bit simple, but it's profound. Jesus is real, is the first one. Now, it isn't the point of this passage, it's a side point to make, I'll try and make it quickly, but it's an important one for us today, considering Jesus 2,000 years after he was around. It's worth us remembering, or noting, if you haven't heard this before, that what we're reading tonight is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. It's a biography of Jesus' life written by John, one of Jesus' best mates, who saw him and wrote what he saw. This isn't myth and fairy tale. Verse 1, we're in Jerusalem. You can go there today, catch a plane, go check out the place where 2,000 years ago this man walked. This is real stuff. It's not myth or legend or fairy tale. But how can we trust that what we're reading tonight is legit? Now, one thing that gets people caught up uh, before they even consider Jesus is he wasn't a real man. And the Bible is unreliable at best. Now, if that's you, if that really is you and that's a big obstacle in your way, you keep tripping over it, no, I can't consider Jesus unless I get this right. Tuesday night is life, 7.30, it's week two. And week two is the week where we look at a lot of evidence for the Bible. And the same reaction happens every time. I didn't know there was so much evidence, but wow, this is how come people don't know about this? If that is you, get along on Tuesday. But I'll whet your appetite tonight because there's two reasons just from these short few verses to say that the Bible isn't an unreliable fairy tale story. It's so far from that. It is, doesn't even come close to that. You can't live in this world valuing the history that we do the archaeology that we do, the science that we do, the text criticism that we do, and think that the Bible is an unreliable document. You just, you can't live that way. And so the first piece of evidence is the pool called Bethesda. So have a look down, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. That's a fair bit of detail about a pool, isn't it? And the only thing that we typically notice in in my growth group this week is that it just makes the verse really hard to read. There's too much going on. What is going on? Where's the commas, right? But to certain people down history, this little detail is a make or break detail about the historicity of the Bible, about this account, about Jesus. And the key detail, you, you definitely would have picked it up, of course, is the word five. Five covered colonnades. Now, I'm not an archaeologist, but I can Google, and this detail is big to those in the know. And the reasoning goes like this. He describes a pool with five colonnades, which is, I've got 
a little slide here with a quote from an article. It's a puzzling feature suggesting an unusual five-sided pool, which most scholars had dismissed as an unhistorical literary creation because of the fact that there was no clear archaeological evidence for the existence of such a pool. Now, that is, archaeologists for a long time were, were sure that this kind of pool doesn't exist, not mentioned. And so they determined that this account, therefore, is unhistorical literary creation. It's made up, just a story. Now, it's like today if someone wrote um, the 2020 Olympian, he dove into the 50-metre pool for the freestyle event and as he passed the third and final bend, he reached the end in first place. And we hear that and we go, hey, that's not how you build an Olympic pool in 2020. Four sides, straight, no curves, right? Well, when you spend your life digging up ancient pools, maybe you have the same reaction. Hey, five covered colonnades, that sounds suspicious, right? This thing doesn't exist. And it can be such a big issue because it's not mentioned anywhere. This is the only place. There's no other references in other writings. There's no other descriptions. We haven't dug one up yet. Big problem. You see, did this really happen? Or is it just an unhistorical literary creation? Is Jesus real? Or is he just an unhistorical literary creation? So what's at stake here? And you can understand how people might use something like this and, and other details like this to undermine the Bible and its historical accuracy. But we're getting there. In the late 19th century, 1888, I believe, such a pool was discovered, excavated. The pool, in fact. This pool that's being talked about. Mind-blown. All the evidence against this piece of the Bible all of a sudden is turned to a great strength. This is the only place that talks about this. But what do we make of this pool that we just dug up? Oh, I guess we have to treat the Bible like a historical document and study it to get an insight into what this pool was, how it functioned in society of the day. No pools had been dug it up which matched the script until this one shows the historical reliability of this. And the same thing happened in John 9. We'll, we'll come to it eventually. The Pool of Siloam was also archaeologically, historically disputed for a long time until around the same time it was dug up too. Now the takeaway is this. The New Testament has multiple pools of evidence to draw upon, right? No, no, that's not the point. The point is, we have so much evidence for Jesus, we're swimming in it, right? No, that, that's not the point. The point is this. This is an eyewitness account. John wrote it like he saw it. And every archaeological dig since is just proving again and again and again that the Bible is historically accurate. The second piece of evidence in these few verses is an example that shows us that the Bible is one of the most reliable documents, ancient documents, that the world's ever seen. Take a look at verse 4. Have a look there. Verse 4, verse 4, right there. What? It's not there, right? Trick question. Um, verse 3 goes straight to verse 5. How come? If you have a certain Bible, you might be able to see verse 4 written down the bottom of the page. I've got one of them ones, so I'll read it out for you. It says this, Some manuscripts here include, And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down, stir up the waters. The first one in the pool after such a disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Verse 4, right? Verse 4 is trying to help us understand verse 7. 
So try and track with me with this, the context that we've just read. It's a bunch of sick people hanging around this pool. Um, They're sick, paralyzed. We're not explicitly told why, but in verse 7, we have, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, when you put those two things together, you realize that there must have been something about this pool that meant that sick people hang around it. There must have been something about the water being stirred. There must have been something about getting in there before others that held out some sort of hope of being healed. And so when John wrote this gospel, he just wrote it like he saw it. He knew the pool, they knew the pool, everyone knew the pool, they knew the vibe. There was no confusion. Why say anymore? But 100 years later, 200 years later, or 100 kilometres away, or 200 kilometres away, there's a little bit of confusion around what's happening here. So, I take it, someone's read this account, been a little confused, but they know the background because they were a local, their family was in the local, they know about it, so they ah, I'll help you out right in verse 4, right? But why has it been taken out? And here's the awesome part. Why is it, why, if it's so helpful, why is it taken out? Because it wasn't there in the original. And we care about the original. A lot of people have cared for a, a lot of years, spent their life's work making sure that what we have in front of us is as close to the original as possible. The earliest dated manuscript evidence that we have. And so when we have this verse, it's, it's helpful, it's, it's not hurting, why don't we just, no, no, it's not the original, we need the original, we value the original. And the end result is that what you hold in your hands, or even on your phone, is the most historically accurate and backed up, tested and tried, ancient document that the world has ever seen. You cannot dismiss the Bible as inaccurate or as legend blown out of proportion. If anything, it's the opposite. It's been refined and refined and refined as technology's gotten better. And so you can't dismiss Jesus as a myth or as a drummed-up legend. We have eyewitness accounts that have been preserved for us and an overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence and archaeological evidence to show that this Jesus is who we read him to be. We cannot go on thinking Jesus just made up. Jesus is real. There's your wet appetite, ready for Tuesday, okay? The second thing, Jesus is powerful. There's a ton of things that John wants us to pick up about Jesus as he just shows us again and again parts of his life, his wisdom, his uh, cunning, his wittiness, his power. Um, They all jump out of the page of us. So take a look at verse 3. Here at the pool that we've just talked about, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Come down to verse 8. Jesus said to him, the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, get up, pick up your mat, walk. Verse 9, at once, immediately, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Wow, that's the effect. Wow, 38 years of withered limbs restored in a moment, immediately cured. No specific treatment, no consultation, no surgery, no physio, no rehabilitation, healed. And notice how Jesus heals the man. He says, get up, with two words, get up. 
Consider what needed to happen for that man to get up, right? Spinal cord and vertebrae reassembled. Bone density restored. Ligaments strengthened to strengthen and pull together those bones, attach them together in strength. Muscle tissue generated, stitched together, built up. Tendons reinforced to attach that muscle to those bones, which are now attached together. Brain neurons firing in the right direction, sending messages somewhere they haven't sent for 38 years. All of this restoration to his physical health with a word. Such is the power of this man Jesus, the power of his words. We cannot read John's gospel of Jesus' life, his account, and miss the power of this man Jesus. Jesus is powerful. Third, Jesus is compassionate. Let's read those verses again from verse 3. Here at the pool again, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, notice first Jesus goes to this place. We have this story, right? Jesus is a busy man. It's fair to assume he hasn't got a whole bunch of time. Like, he's impacted the world with three years, right? He's a busy man. He can't have time for all these unscheduled stop-offs, surely not. And Jesus is a popular man. This isn't a hot summer's day where he's going to hang by the pool with all the cool kids. Quite the opposite. This is where the rejects of society hung out, waiting to be healed. And even more than these things, Jesus is on a mission. And his mission didn't require him to go here. He didn't need to go here to fulfill his mission. Yet, he did. So why did he? Because he had someone in mind. Someone who he had compassion for. Look at verse 5. One, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learnt that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This man, paralysed for 38 years, that's 13,870 days, sitting by a pool, waiting for the opportunity to be healed. Only to have morning after morning, someone else make it in before him. Ah, tomorrow, ah, tomorrow, next time. Imagine what that's like. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, walk. When the other people of the day, people that were sick too, they had their own ailments, but more able-bodied than this man, when they passed him, walking past him to get into the pool, probably scurrying past him to get in first, without much concern for him, for 38 years, Jesus stops and says to him, do you want to get well? Get up. There's a great crowd here and Jesus stands out in the crowd because he notices the one who doesn't stand out in the crowd and has compassion on him, the one who no one seems to care for. And Jesus stands out because of his compassion. You only have to look at the example of the Jewish religious leaders of the time uh, to see how much Jesus is different to them and stands out. So figure this, 38 years disabled, this man gets healed, he's loving it, he's probably jumping around for joy, right? And look, verse 10, have a look. The religious leaders just look at him and say, Oi, are you carrying your mat? Completely un 
without compassion for this man. See, caring for the sick wasn't what it is today. The world hadn't met Jesus in his compassion yet, hadn't been transformed by his compassion. Jesus, busy though he was, popular though he was, on a mission though he was, stops to show this man kindness and compassion that he hasn't been shown in 38 years. Jesus is compassionate. And how wonderful to hold those two points up next to each other. Jesus' compassion and his power. We might have been intimidated and afraid of this man. What's he going to do? He's too powerful. He needs to be controlled. If not for his compassion. And remember, Jesus is God. We saw this last week. Jesus is God. God the Father isn't the meanie up in the sky and Jesus is the nice guy on the ground, right? Um, As John reveals Jesus to us, Jesus reveals the Father to us. This is our God, full of compassion and powerful to do something about it. That's our God. Which leads to the fourth thing that we see about Jesus. Jesus is Saviour. Now, Jesus' compassion doesn't end with this man's physical restoration. Have a look at verse 14 with me. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse. Something worse? Something worse than 38 years of misery and shame in that society? 38 years, almost 14,000 days of dashed hopes again and again and again? What could be worse than that? It's clear from Jesus' word that there is something worse. He says it. Is he talking about 39 years being paralysed or perhaps blind also? No, he's not. Look at verse 28. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his, that's Jesus' voice, and come out. A time is coming where they'll hear his voice, people will come out of their graves. To those who have done good, what is good? Uh, who, who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Will rise to be condemned. Condemnation is what is worse. Jesus' compassion for this man isn't ultimately about his physical state. If it was, he would have left him be. He wouldn't have bothered to go find him. But no, he seeks him out in the temple again to warn him about his spiritual state. Don't sin. Stop sinning, says Jesus, because a day of judgment is coming. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, this, this man's legs might be healed and he might be able to walk again, which means he can participate in that ancient society again. But all of that's useless if he's excluded from being able to participate in eternal life. Jesus sees that Sin is this man's ultimate sickness, with the capacity to destroy life forever, not just 38 years, something much worse. And Jesus has compassion enough to warn him about this. And that's interesting, compassion enough to warn him about. I wonder, is that how we think? Do we think of warning people about judgment to come as an act of compassion? Now, these days, it's, it's everything but compassion is what it's seen. It's judgmental, it's uh, hypocritical, it's 
oppressive, it's abusive. Don't get me wrong, there are terrible ways for us to go about warning people about the judgment come, but there are compassionate ways. We must look at Jesus' example here and see that it is compassionate, it's loving, it's other person concerned and centred to warn them about their ultimate reality facing God on judgment day, facing Jesus. And we need to keep concerning ourselves with the importance of that gospel message. Now, Jesus is concerned with the holistic salvation of this man, not just his health, but his eternity. And Jesus is not just this man's saviour. This account shows us, teaches us, that Jesus is our saviour, my saviour, your saviour. This whole event in Jesus' life, his compassion towards this man, uh, teaches us that Jesus is our saviour and the nature of him saving us. Let me draw out some parallels here. Jesus had compassion on this man, just as he had compassion on this man, so too he had compassion on us and our spiritual state, a spiritual state caused by our sin, just as this man. And so just as Jesus came and walked among those people of the pool and sought this man out where he was at to save him, so too Jesus came into our world to save. God took on flesh in Jesus, walked among us, made his dwelling among us to meet us where we're at and to save us, to be our saviour. Just as this man was unable to help himself into the pool to be healed, paralysed, completely helpless and dependent, we too are helpless to save ourselves because of our sin. The Bible teaches that we are spiritually sick, weak, paralyzed, dead even, such as the strength of the imagery of our complete reliance. Jesus had such compassion on our hopelessness that we were his mission. He took on flesh to suffer in our place, to face the penalty that our sin has deserved, the judgment that our sin deserves. And having done all this and risen from the dead, by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He speaks to our spiritually dead corpses and says those same words, get up, wake up. And just like the bones and the ligaments and the tendons and the tissues, all of that had to be restored in order for him to get up, so too Jesus speaks to us and brings us alive. He restores our spiritual ears to hear his voice and hear the gospel message. He turns our hearts of stone which hate God into hearts of flesh which love and can receive his word. He gives us new birth and new life by his words, just like here. And just as he seeks this man out in the temple and warns him and says, sin no longer, so also Jesus says those words to us, sin no longer. Jesus brought us to a new life, a transformed life, a new creation, where we can't sin any longer. We can't live like that. We've got to live with Jesus as our Lord. And so that leads to the fifth and final point, that Jesus is Lord. In this passage, we see Jesus' kingly authority in his words, in his commands. Verse 8, get up, pick up, walk. The man obeys Jesus' words and saved. Verse 14, he says, stop sinning. Now, we aren't told whether or not the man heeded Jesus' words there. Stop sinning. 
It didn't, doesn't tell us that he did this all his life and he died obeying Jesus right to the end. Perhaps intentionally, but the warning is the same for us today. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Judgment. Now, for those of us who have heard Jesus' voice and we've come alive, uh, Jesus tells us in his word, the Bible, time and time again, stop sinning, be transformed, live a transformed life, live for God. Now, it may be possible, at least from our perspective, to imagine that Jesus can be our saviour, but not our Lord. So think like, say you go swimming at the beach and you get caught in a rip and a lifesaver dives in, swims out, grabs you, brings you back to shore, has saved you from drowning, pulls you up and says, never swim again or you might not be so lucky. Now, I could call him my saviour. He saved me, right? But he's not the Lord of my life. I've got to risk it for the biscuit. I'm probably going to get back in the water one day. I don't have to obey him. He isn't Lord over my life. But when it comes to Jesus, those two things are one and the same. You cannot separate them. Jesus is our Saviour and our Lord. There is no such thing as being healed and then going and sitting by the pool for the rest of your life again. That kind of bad pool that kind of doesn't really work because it sounds kind of nice. But hoping to be healed when you've already been healed, right? There's no such thing about being brought back to life spiritually, back in a relationship with God, only to throw it in the trash and keep rebelling and rejecting Jesus. We aren't told the ultimate fate of this man, whether he truly did turn to Jesus and obey him, but how tragic if he didn't, that he'd been restored and healed of his ailments physically, but it was all for nothing because he couldn't keep the scope of eternity, couldn't obey Jesus and finds himself being raised to condemnation. What good is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Jesus, the man whose words brought life to this guy's limbs, Jesus, the man whose words brought spiritual life to us, get up, wake up, is the same man whose words tell us how to live in order to have life to the full. Will you trust Jesus' words, that his words are how life is given to us? He's got a good track record. Will we trust him with those decisions in our life and obey his word? It is how we respond to Jesus' words and how we are transformed by him which shows us uh, whether Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. And so step back and take a look at this Jesus. Yes, he's, he's real, he's powerful, he's compassionate, he's Saviour, he is Lord. What an astounding picture of Jesus, towering over the top of us, yet he bends right down, right down low towards us. Wow, that's someone I want to follow. With everything that I've got, you will find no worthier person to follow. You'll find no better reason to follow than life eternally. And so what do you make of Jesus? Who is Jesus? How does it change your life? At what point are you relating to this Jesus? Jesus is a real man. Is that something that you've come to realise or you're starting to worry about, right? Have you realised that Jesus is real? Are you stuck here just thinking, yeah, Jesus is real, he's a man, but... right? Jesus is powerful. He is more than just a man. You can't just treat him like a man. Are you scared of him? 
you ought to have some sort of reverent fear of God. But are you caught scared of God? And you won't come close because you haven't realised that He's compassionate. He's more than just powerful. Do you know Jesus' compassion toward you? Do you rely on Him in prayer? Do you, do you pray to the God of all comfort and compassion? But Jesus isn't only concerned with our comfort in this life, though He does love to give His children good gifts, but don't get caught up there because Jesus is our Saviour, concerned with the whole. Do you know the need that you have of a Saviour? Do you know that? Have you come to Him, relying on Him completely? Have you come to Him knowing that He gives you rest from clamouring to the edge of the pool? Or are you busy doing that day in, day out, trying to heal yourself? You cannot. Jesus is our Saviour. And if you do say that you have been saved by Jesus, have you made Him your Lord? Do you obey Jesus now that you've been healed? Do you trust His Word no matter what? Or are you too busy caught up on the wrong idea of Jesus' compassion, thinking, ah, He's compassionate, He's not going to judge us. He's a God of compassion, He'll have compassion on me. No, a time is coming, says Jesus. Stop sinning or something worse will happen. When Jesus returns and his voice calls you out of the grave, it's going to happen, right? You'll, you, will you be raised to life? Or will you be raised to be condemned? Will you be raised to life because you heard Jesus' words and you obeyed? Or will you be raised to be condemned because you don't care about his words? You rejected him and kept on sinning. This miraculous sign Jesus performed shows us very clearly that we are saved through no effort of ourselves, purely by the compassion of our Saviour Jesus. Yet it also teaches us that we're saved to live a different life, saved to live a transformed life, a life where we partner with God, a life of stopping the sin, turning from our own desires and towards what would please God. We stand in awe of this towering figure of Jesus. Whatever he says leads to life. Do you believe it? Whatever. Will you hear and obey? Whatever he says, he is my Lord. He has the words of life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the picture of Jesus revealed in your word. We thank you that he is powerful and compassionate. And we thank you that you sent him to save. Please help us to live with him as our Lord. Help us by the power of your spirit to know what it is to live a life that's pleasing to you and help us by please giving us the strength to live a transformed life. Amen. Amen.